Welcome back to Left Anchor, and Happy New Year. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Um, and yes, Happy New Year. Tw- may 2019 be every bit as big of a hell mouth as it 2018 was. Um, <laughs> so to start off today, I think we want to dive right in. We're going to talk a little bit about the accounting of imperialism. Ooh. Um, and this uh, this is sparked by a uh, the source of all good things, <laughs> namely Twitter. And I was posting I was posting that I had never seen an argument for the idea that um, the that American prosperity depends on exploiting poorer countries. And a few people were generally uh, actually pretty helpful, and they tried to actually answer my question. A much larger number of people were very rude um, and uh, said I should be guillotined or that it was offensive to even ask the question. Um, But I thought it would be an interesting thing to dive in, actually, to sort of try try to logic this out, because I think it has important implications Right. And to be clear, the question is not whether capitalism in the United States benefits or even exploits uh, workers around the world or that whether there exists imperialism. We, we know that that's the case. The, the question is whether the entire system and the amount of wealth produced depends, hinges uh, explicitly uh, on. And I don't know how you want to refine the question, but, but it's really about the extent to which exploitation of the workers uh, around the world is the source of the, the wealth uh, in the United States. Is that is that the way you would put it, or, or how would you ask the question? Yeah, that that's basically right. So so what we're not we're we're not saying that imperialism doesn't exist. Like you know, look around you. We have like thirteen aircraft carriers, um, and that's more than the rest of the world put together. Uh, and it's also not saying that historically imperialism didn't benefit the United States and other countries concretely. Um, I think you could see this, you know, most clearly in the history of the UK, where they had these kind of uh, captive markets. That, like the whole the whole imperial Commonwealth was, was sort of like a captive market for uh, U, uh, UK industrialists. Um, you know, and in the case of India and China, especially, you you had a sort of forced uh, deindustrialization of of uh, what had been, you know, the biggest cotton manufacturing centers in the world, uh, because they were undercut by British uh, textile uh, factories. You know, because the ones in India and China were all all home, you know, small proprietor sort of things, and the British flooded them in, and when the when the uh those countries tried to close their borders or made some to you know to try to resist uh you know u s uh ec- sorry u k economic penetration the British responded with masses of military power you know and uh gunboat diplomacy basically and they did that for 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 textiles and also for opium you know the opium wars it was like we're that this was sort of part of the whole logic of the scheme. You know, we're going to sell textiles in India, and then later we're going to stuff China full of opium because it sells like hotcakes, classic drug dealer sort of uh, setup, and kind of wrecked, 
you know, wrecked those countries for several centuries. They were, they were, you know, reduced, uh, impoverished. I, I so, would say that, uh, I would say that hotcakes sell like opium rather mm. than opium selling like hotcakes because really <clears throat> opium even more, uh, addictive than, than hotcakes, I would say. Right. Yes. Um, so right. Yeah, we're, so, we're, so we're not saying we're not saying imperialism doesn't exist. We're not seeing that imperialism isn't closely linked to global capitalism and the ways that wealthy countries in the quote unquote global north get rich. That's not the argument, right? Yes, right. And and I I'm just I'm saying that you know the question is we here in the United States we have this massively productive economic machine. Where does that product production come from? You know what are the sources and what are the um, you know, the, the sort of underpinnings of it. And I think politically, the, the in, you know, the, whether or not this is the case, uh, that, that uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, productivity is based on exploiting the, the global South, um, I think could have some pretty enormous ramifications because if it's possible to cut back imperialism and, and only, you know, moderately ding the, the U.S. economy, uh, it would be much easier to sell to the middle class and the working class. It wouldn't be like, well, OK, you know, we've got to cut our, you know, cut your standard of living by like three fourths or whatever. Um, and also, it's just a question where like, like, you know, I just saw, I see it asserted a lot and um, I, it's just not terribly convincing to me. It doesn't strike me as terribly plausible. In ter- and again, in terms of like the big, the bulk of the production, not that, you know, like clearly other countries are being dominated. They are being kept down, I would say, by the by Amer- by like global capitalism. There, you know, a lot of countries are being not allowed to get on that development ladder. But I think it you could you could easily imagine a system uh, in which that maybe wasn't necessary. And so that's what I wanted to look into. That's a good way to put it. And I, I, I'm glad you raised why it's an important question and the implications, because I think for many people intuitively, right, on the left, the intuition was to go against what you were saying because perhaps you were justifying in some way, um, right, like capitalism and the way that it doesn't rely on exploitation, except you're not saying that. It, it, you're probably going to conclude, I, I would think, that the exploitation it relies on is mostly domestic exploitation of workers, right? But, like, people are probably not realizing that the argument is, as you say, um, no, in fact, this system is extraneously and unnecessarily being imperialistic and the ways in which uh, we can conceive of a different future politically, domestically, should it readily allow for us to curtail wars, <laughs> right? Uh, because in a perverse way, reactionary ideas, uh, if they think war is necessary for resources and for, for cheap labor, um, like, you, like you suggested, that could perpetuate the ideologies that support uh, those terrible things. Yeah, and so... Um... You know, one 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 way you might try to dig into this is you could just look at uh, you know total imports. Um, take a take a glance at. Uh, we'll link these in the description. The Federal Reserve keeps track of all the imports that are coming in, um, and the Census Bureau breaks them down by country. And so, you look at total imports in uh, twenty seventeen. Were about uh, two point, I think nine, 
$9.28 trillion. So a pretty sizable chunk. Um, so you look at these, uh, the, the uh, imports and where they're coming from. You look at rich countries, which means, you know, Canada, EU, Japan, South Korea, Australia, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, uh, Norway, Switzerland. Um, add those up, the, 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 the rich imports, about 45%. China is about 20%. Um, and I think it's fair to leave out China because they are pretty clearly benefiting more than the U.S. from that trade relationship. Um, and, and to the tune of, you know, several hundred billion dollars just in the, the deficit alone um, and very rapid growth rates. And so that means the, the leftover from, from that would, you know, saying everyone else is a developed world, that's about a third, 33%, or about $967 billion. And so you could say, you know, suppose those were... Uh, those those imports are underpriced, right? We're getting super cheap imports of, you know, coltan or textiles, you know, backpacks and shoes and stuff like that. Um and those things should be twice as much twice as much money as they uh you know should be. And so that would mean, you know, that that the that those imports would cost twice as much. And um you know what would be five uh, percent of GDP, maybe uh, should be ten percent of GDP or something like that. Um, so that you know, I think is a somewhere on the order of five percent of GDP. That seems like a perfectly plausible estimation of 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 what the sort of the sort of like broadly speaking benefits. To that that people are getting in the form of cheap, you know, made by slave labor or very underpriced sweatshop workers and stuff like that. I find that totally plausible. And that is, to be fair, a lot of money. A lot of money. A lot of money. So What's we're extracting and exploiting poor labor around the world for 5% of GDP. Yeah, like I mean, that. this would be the, a, a top-end estimate, I would say. If, if, you know, just looking at it through this particular lens, and I think it's a, you know, this is very distorted like I'm leaving a lot of stuff out here but um it's you know this you know we're looking at big picture stuff and if it's a big if it's that's the case that the entire system depends on it like it should be pretty obvious to come out in the basic statistics um but this i think uh, is a good place to bring up that labor aristocracy article by uh, charlie post that you um that that you mentioned and we'll post that in the description as well yeah, so um, it, we should note that it was written uh, what twelve years ago, something like that. So yeah, uh, two thousand six. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind with with numbers and percentages and whatnot. But I still think that the, the thrust of uh, the analysis and, and the uh, empirical data brought to bear uh, are worth uh, worth looking at. Um, but I guess first that the connection is, um, I guess Charlie, Charlie Post is looking at this. Um, idea that started with angles and letters to Marx from the 1850s, to 1880s, and then was really um, popularized by Lenin. Um, this notion of labor aristocracy, which is tied to uh, the idea that kind of global North countries or, or imperialist countries that are very wealthy, like the United States, uh, 
their proletariat, their working class, is kept in a reformist, conservative, or reactionary ideological place more readily because of the gains taken um, by that wealthy first world country at the expense of workers around the world in um, you know less developed countries. And so the labor aristocracy phrase refers to uh, say the United States workers, especially like the steel workers, rather than the poorest of the poor workers in the United States, especially right uh, workers uh, that would normally be at the forefront of uh, unionizing and, and, and fighting for um, revolutionary struggle domestically. Um, the idea is that they're kept from doing that because of their aristocratic, in a, in a sense. Um, relative stance to other workers in less developed countries. And so th this is something that Post calls a myth worth exploring with, with empirical data. Is that uh, a good overview? Yeah, yeah. Similar type of motivation, I would say. Um, yeah. And the I, implications for, for, for him were that this is important to find out whether it's true to see if the source of the, the obstacles to revolutionary change here are like the reason we have so many uh, reactionary ideas, sexism, homophobia, um, you know, a third of union workers voting for right wing Republicans. If that is because of this notion of labor aristocracy, that's important. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, basically he just looks into the, you know, the statistics and, and concludes that it's just not at all true that, um, you know, insofar as uh, as workers writ large have gained any benefit from you know the the exploitation of of poorer countries it's kind of happened across the board not not by uh, not by like you know segmentation into like little, like like one soup you know elite workers and then like a bunch of like smaller ones um right and he well he said yeah this you know this so this is again a pretty old data but it says you know foreign foreign direct investment makes up only f uh five percent of total world investment that is to say 95 percent of total capitalist investment takes place within the boundaries of each industrialized country of that 5% of total global investment, that is foreign direct investment, nearly three quarters flow from one industrialized country, one part of the global north to another. Right. Um, thus, only 1.25% of total world investment flows from the global north to the global south. And so he's ba like he basically concludes that uh, this type of thing is not, you know, is fairly marginal in terms of the whole productive apparatus. And the main uh, use of it politically and, you know, within these, you know, unions is to bust the unions that 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 um, globalization and investment over, uh, you know, national boundaries and stuff is mainly used as a threat to either extract, uh, you know, concessions from the workers in some domestic country or to just move the production over there to benefit the national capitalist and, you know, gain, uh, at, you know, chase some cheaper labor in another country. And so this, right. th this I think, complicates even this, even my, my uh, previous um, statement before, you know, when you're looking at, okay, we're getting underpriced products. 
well, what would happen if we couldn't get those underpriced products? Would we just not have any products? Well, what happened before in the pre-neoliberal, like the kind of Bretton Woods age, which is not perfect either, by the way, of course, you know, there's a lot of exploitation going on there. But in industries were more managed domestically and capital controls were very, you know, were pretty rigorously enforced. And so people would just build the stuff domestically and, tr you know, trade it at a more reasonable price instead of just like chasing their own tails around the globe to find the absolute cheapest place with the least environmental regulations. Um, and so, you know, that un those that underpriced, you know, the, the fact of the uh, U.S. has this massive trade deficit, right? Well, that's kind of, on the one hand, the U.S. having the privilege of being able to borrow like almost limitless quantities of money because the, the U.S. dollar is a reserve currency. But on the other hand, that trade deficit is Americans buying stuff, shipping demand for products over to other countries, especially China. Um and that demand, if it weren't for these, you know, trade deals that have uh, happened over the years, would probably come from domestic production. Um, you know, you look at when when China got permanent national uh, permanent normal trade relations in 2000 under Bill Clinton, the number of manufacturing workers in this country just plummeted off a cliff. It fell by like, you know, like a third in a, like a year. Because everyone just packed things up and and shipped stuff to China, and um, you know, so so like, yeah, and the you know, in this the case of you know, manuf electronics, uh, rare earth metals, these sorts of things. Yeah, in a sense, you know, uh, American consumers like me and you are benefiting from cheap electronics, cheap textiles, and so forth. But like a lot of other people. Are, are being harmed by the loss of those jobs which would exist domestically. You know, we used to make rare earth metals. They're actually not rare. China just undercut everyone by not doing any environmental cleanup at all. Um, and um, the rest of the working class that still has jobs has, is harmed by the undermining of solidarity and the, and the anti-working class politics of, you know, battering down... Uh, wages broadly with the threat of just as he says that's here. a great point yeah that's a great point yeah because <laughs> there's a great line in, in the piece about um how workers don't just they can't just always be organizing and always be striking and always be uh pushing the revolutionary struggle not the same group of workers the same workers because they're forced to work all the time right <laughs> to, that's like that's the point right and so there's different moments where different um groups some more well off than others some in, in other industries have to pick up the struggle uh but they can be pitted against each other and it can be divisive um but you're right i th look the the trump victory the thousands, the few thousands of people in the right, correct states that, that swung the Electoral College. It's almost a kind of uh, miraculous for Trump uh, way in which the Electoral College works that lined up with where the rust or steel belt uh, had suffered so much, right? So it might not be a huge percentage of GDP, but those, those workers that were harmed by these things happened to be in those states that were swing states that helped Trump eke out a victory despite losing 3 million votes to Hillary Clinton, right? Um, using, right, the kind of populist, divisive, reactionary ideas that could take advantage of, of that economic reality. Yeah, and, um, 
you know, and this this also it, you know uh, leaves out another cost here: uh, the, the direct cost of funding the military. So look, like uh, this, these folks at Brown University have been doing a thing on the costs of empire. Um, Post nine eleven wars, according to them, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Pakistan, uh, they say have cost so far in like you know so, a lot of past costs and like future, you know maybe interest payments that v- that will vary the total cost by a lot depending on how much you think financing all the borrowing to pay for this stuff is going to cost. But they're they're saying five point nine trillion dollars. That's how much over the last eighteen years all these wars. these wars have. And that's does that take into account all the medical care for the the VA soldiers and everything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that's probably more than half of the uh, the expense uh, because and medical it, it care would, is so be, expensive. And sadly, it it would be even more if if the the tragic truth of so many suicides um, uh, by soldiers coming back weren't yeah. a reality, Fuck. right? It's just yeah, it's right. so depressing. Yeah, so blood it's and kinda... treasure just. <laughs> It's like how we're going to solve the social security financing problem. <laughs> we're just going to we're just going to cut down the uh, life expectancy of everybody. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that's that's 328, you know, averaged over 18 years. That's 328 billion dollars a year. So that like really eats into our exorbitant privilege right there. You say it's 500 billion we're getting in Walmart shoes. Um yeah. well, we're, you know, we're also paying through the nose for you know, prosthetic limbs for Jimmy McIowa farm boy who got his legs blown off by an IED in Iraq. Yeah. And what, right. never, you know, ne- yeah. Ne- never mind how the socialist vision of, of, uh, changing the whole system would, would take like a Medicare for all system at least. Right. And make that whole industry much more efficient, co- save costs. Like True. when you think of, of, of like a socialist vision, you can't think of it piecemeal if you think of it together. And I guess the point is that like, if we stop waging all these wars, it saves a ton of money. If we stop doing this bullshit piecemeal technocratic capitalist ACA, which is was better than what was before, right? But still like if you move to a Medicare for all, if you do these kinds of things together, uh, you don't have the arguments to say, well, that sounds like a nicer life for everyone, but it's too expensive. It it goes to, you know, it's like you could think you could sort of pencil this out and, um, you know, it's sort of like you could say, OK, we're benefiting from this. We're benefiting from that. But I think this, you know, it's one of the weaknesses of how lefties tend to adopt a very economisty type of reasoning um, to think that the only motivation can possibly be some sort of like self-interested income-based logic, you know, your historical dialectical materialism or whatever, you know, it's like everybody's the base and superstructure of the kind of orthodox Marxists and and such. And, um, you know, you, you look at the war in Iraq and it was like, what the fuck was the point of that? What were we doing there? This Was this some kind of like business proposition like i i mean if it was it was really fucking stupid and a horrifying failure that didn't achieve anything of what it was you know trying to get and i think that like people are they're very cynical about like u.s imperialism i think they're not cynical enough it's not just mercenary like people are profiting sure the defense contractors are profiting and the uh you know maybe the oil companies are profiting a little bit getting contracts to drill in Iraq and so forth but like the country as a whole is suffering cuz it's well, senseless. that's the thing that's 
that's the thing. The, the myth is that capitalism cares about like aggregate capital uh, production and well-being of the country. There's a degree to which stability and certain things matter, but really the actors and the corporations want their own private uh, entities to capture as much as possible, right? And and they could be in league with each other to that end. But um, we, you mentioned not that long ago that like three trillion dollars was left on the table in the last however many decades because of of, of capitalism and you know along the oh, trajectory yeah, yeah, that yeah 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 if, yeah, you, yeah, know, if, if you, want... you um say you know you you do a do a log chart of growth per capita um from 1945 to 2007 trundling along at 2.2% per year sometimes above sometimes below after 2007 it kinks down by about 40% and it has not uh increased to the it has not caught up to the trend in fact it's actually getting further away from the from the previous trend with every passing year and the reason is austerity and um the basically austerity that was that's the reason uh, they had the Obama stimulus, but it was only about half as big as it needed to be. And then after that, there was a shit ton of austerity because Republicans are in control of, of government. And yeah, we're sitting here, you know, if you, ju- you just measure that gap in, I think I measured it in 2017, in just back of the envelope, $3 trillion of GDP. That's that's bigger than the GDP of California. Um, and it's because of, right. of ca- you know, capitalist uh, uh, ideology. This is yeah, thanks, yeah. So hashtag the, thanks Obama. <laughs> the creative uh, destruction and the ingenuity and innovation and all of the, the ways that capitalism's ideology says, no, no, don't regulate anything because, you know, whether or not you're a commie and you think things should be distributed differently, at least this will, this is the way to grow a- aggregate wealth. And that's just a fucking lie, apparently. <laughs> so Well, so it I, depends you know. on context, I think. You know, you, you, uh, we we have been stuck in this trap before. This is the New Deal. This is what what why the New Deal, for all of its manifold successes, did not fix the Great Depression, because FDR uh, pussed out and uh, wussed out, I should say, um, <laughs> in 1937 and tried to balance the budget, and the economy just collapsed again, went right back into depression because he was a, he was a budget phobe. You look at. FDR's campaign platform in 1932, every part of it is really good. It's like, we're all in this together, solving collective problems. We're going to like, you know, we're going to take care of the business. We're going to, we're going to, you know, kick the money changes out of the temple. And also we're balancing the budget because Hoover is spending too much money. And he didn't, he didn't do that, but he never lost that ethos. And just like Obama, he never lost that, like this, this sort of neurotic fixation on the budget deficit. And so it, yeah, it took the yeah. war, the war, you know, the new deal got us maybe halfway there and the war really got us the rest of the way there. And I think that basically, you know, we had a new system after 1945 and it sort of went on autopilot f- for about 30 years. And then they started taking it apart. The capitalists got the whip hand again and they started taking it apart and returning us to 1920s political economy. And then in 2007, we're right back to where we were in 1929. Same you know, same exact politics, you know, with some fuzziness around the gold standard and such. Right. So, I, I mean, what does this say about, like, what are the political implications of this analysis of how capitalism works? And, and um, yeah, I, t- let's let's go back to that a little bit. I think. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, 
Um, I guess the, the, the big political implication I would draw from this is that, you know, workers of the world should maybe unite. That the enemy is not... <laughs> The, you heard it here first. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> the the enemy, f- for the most part, is not the the you know the United States as a political like entity and as an economic entity. Like there are some problems there, but they're fixable problems, and we don't have to immiserate the entire population to like you know to to make the economy less uh, a, run in a sort of like just fashion the enemy is like international capitalism which global capitalism yeah. exactly they have you know the 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 the, the sort of transnational ruling class that is you know basically identifies more with its its peers in in uh you know in europe and china and singapore and hong kong and wherever than it does with its actual domestic constituency and That's it, right. The, and, the multi the multinational corporations that use various states to their ends, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And I think that you know, it's it kind of suggests a politics of thinking about like we sh- we should tend to our own backyard, and then we should we should we should also think about our sort of comrades in other countries and try to yes. set up our because like if 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 we you know probably the case that that workers you know in within each country have more in common with each other than they do with you know people in across the pacific ocean or whatever but they certainly have more in common with like the workers in those other countries than they do with their own domestic uh capitalist overlords you know yes. and i think that you know that this this to me is the big missing it's like lenin is trying to figure out why the workers um you know, they they sided with their national governments in the war in 1914 instead of going internationally, and it's like the answer obviously is nationalism and and patriotism. There's this war frenzy. People have very strong you know group identity with their own national you know group, and like that. Well, look, yeah, you you and and like he constructs this elaborate you know theory of like oh they must be somehow getting bribed vis-a-vis the people in like madagascar or whatever it's like this is yeah, fucking it's, ridiculous it, it's not all well and and look sometimes it's as we see with gramsci right sometimes it's the superstructure or the ideology right that acts first it's not necessarily yes. that because the assumption there was like well there must be some material uh, start that gave rise to this nationalism uh, sometimes you dupe people into believing in things like uh, the national identity is all that matters and that gets them to act against their own right material interests it, th- this by the way was obama's point when he got in trouble uh, in that closed room fundraiser for saying that uh republicans vote you know that are economically w- un- not well off vote vote uh, against their own economic interests because they cling to their Bibles and guns. Yeah. And what he meant was and, that th- what he meant was the right wing uses religion and, and culture in order to dupe people to voting against their own economic interests. It's the same idea, right? And Trump is taking advantage of this and the whole global trend for the right to say, yes, indeed, globalists are to blame. Meanwhile, they're like, of course, like feeding the corporation's bottom lines. But like, yes, we must have nationals and patriotism close the border. This is the right reactionary way to dupe people into uh, what seems like the the right response against a globalized world that harms the workers, right? 
But the left yeah. has to offer an alternative, an alternative, right, which has that solidarity internationally with other workers. Yeah, and I guess, you know, it's like, the, the, I, I, as we were saying before, politically, I think it's, um, you know, if it, if it can be the case, and I believe it is the case, that you could reconfigure the U.S. economy to be, to, to, to not exploit uh, uh, countries across the world um, without really harming the, the well-being of, of the average American schlub. Um, that would be definitely something that we'd want to take advantage of. Um, but I guess, you know, secondly, I think like there, there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, the right wing caricature is like, uh, the, the liberals are blame America firsters and like, that's kind of silly, but I think there kind of is a strain of, of people who they are really into the idea that America is a terrible country. Um, you know, that it's like a uniquely historical, barbarous, you know, p- full of ingrates and obese, you know, which just... is ironic. It's ironic because that itself is a myth of national identity, isn't it? <laughs> that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it kind of is. Um, and, you know, it's like, again, America not not defending, you know, the last 20 years of blood and insanity from from this country. But I think, you know. My lesson is, this is what happens when one country has overwhelming dominant power, um, when one country is rules unchallenged. This is basically, so it's maybe a little bit worse than when the UK was the dominant power, but they did the same kind of stuff. And, you know, it's just, I mean, it's its own kind of chauvinism to think that Americans are uniquely terrible. You know, we're, we're just like <laughs> it's a, it's, anybody it's, else. It's the shadow. It's the shadow of American exceptionalism by saying we're exceptionally evil. It's it's just that it's the inverse of, of American exceptionalism, right? And, yeah. And it's just like all, all empires are evil in the sense that like the very point of them, right? And, and this is the sense in which we, like other powerful countries, do in some part necessarily rely on harming others. That's, of course, true. And that's what we're trying to combat. But we don't have to combat it by harming our own people as well economically or otherwise yes and i think that you know the the if you believe in democracy you know you have to try to come up with a sort of program and a politics that will allow the people who are running the country to you know sort of operate in a moral fashion and if you're just like, well, America is bad and that's the end of the story, it's like, well, all right, who else is on deck? Like, what, where else can I go for ideas? Well, not even that. But although there is a sense in which focusing on the United States is correct morally and politically and, and otherwise, and that's the sense oh, yeah. in which, like, we are responsible in a democratic republic uh, for our own governance, oh, right? We, we are in charge. So we are responsible for the bad things we do. And we need to try to fight power here, especially, and, and change all the ills as much as we can. So we're called upon to focus on this country's evils for that reason. But that's the, the same argument that says we can be different because we have the power to fight for a more just way of doing things. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, that should be the thing to be like, yeah, you know, this is this is flawed. You know, this this country is... It's not had a good last 20 years, but here's how we could make it better. And I think, you know, I sort of imagine a neighborhood, you know, or like 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 two neighborhoods, um, you know, you, 
ideally, hopefully, you know, you kind of know your neighbors, you you kind of like try to participate in the community. Maybe not all of us do it uh, as much as we should. It's hard in this country. But you try to, you know, live in the in the place and um, be, you know, participate. And um, if if you look at, you know, it's like a neighboring community, like a, the next neighborhood over, you could think of, you could think of a relationship there that's like sort of very toxic, very defensive, very like aggressive, sort of like we're putting up we're do, we're doing a we're a gated community. We're putting up walls yeah, around yeah. our community. We're not going right, to have right. any truck with those those fucking <clears throat> those those lower east side people because they're disgusting subhuman beasts. They're bringing rapists. <laughs> they're bringing their bad people. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> and then you could imagine a sort of like good a, a good neighborly sort of sort of idea to be like, well, they're not us. They're not. They're not. Uh, they don't live in our neighborhood. Maybe they want might want to come over here. But, like, you know, we want to sort of, like, have friendly relations with them. And they deal with their stuff because they're the people who know who knew, or, uh, know well how to deal with the, their, their own problems. We deal with our problems. But, like, maybe there's some room for some constructive, uh, you know, constructive engagement and some, like, uh, you know, cross-pollination and uh, friendly re- relations and so on and so forth. And that's kind of, like, the model that I would I would think I would hope for and— you know, possibly it's. Like, <clears throat> remember, I wrote an article a while ago that was like b- b- exaggerated, uh, sort of title like the looming threat of Chinese imperialism. You know, which is like <laughs> not. It's like maybe okay, not 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 quite uh, appropriate um, from a U.S. context. Nevertheless, China is definitely developing its own m- empire, and it's one which I think. Yes. will be much more ruthless than the American one if uh, it's sort of just allowed to play its own logic out because it is a dictatorship. You know, there's like a million of uh, Uyghur people in camps. You know, this is what dictatorships do. They oppress the shit out of their own population and they uh, they manipulate other countries and other peoples to their own devices. But, and, and to be clear, that the, their war is being waged economically. They're buying up ports. They're buying up lands. They're they're moving right belt uh, and road in, investment. Thing. All o- yes, it's all very over Africa, Wall all Street. Over... It's mm-hmm, like we're exactly. getting all the strategic minerals, all the resources. We're 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 suborning governments. Um, well, the... so so what do you? Yeah, yeah. What do you say to the argument then that doesn't? The U.S. have to participate and check the power of China economically in this global economic warfare. Uh, how, as socialists, how do we um, fight against global capitalism while at the same time tracking perhaps even more dangerous uh, empires and what they're doing globally? Yeah, well, and this would be, you know, you're talking about a friendly neighbor. You can only be friendly with people who are friendly towards you. Um, and so, you know... I think, uh, I mean, you, you know, look at our, our number one trading partner to this day is Canada because it's right next to us. And we have very and nice Canadians are so nice. Let's be honest. <laughs> Some stereotypes are true. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Eh? Eh? <laughs> they are very friendly people. And I think, you know, that NAFTA, by the way, sh- shout out to one of our, uh, fans, right? JP from Montreal, Canadian. Just yeah. want to do a little shout out. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we, we love our Canadian friends. 
<laughs> it's true. Um, but yeah, Mexico, but yeah, so, so we're the close EU, mm-hmm. you know, pe- people that are that that we that we have historical ties to, that we have ec- existing economic ties to. You know, we trade that we trade. There's trade volume with the EU. I think is almost as big or even bigger than it is with China. And I think you know the the way that the left should think about the rise of China is is to be a sort of just like counterweight not aggressive not belligerent it's like we're 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 here to check them and they're here to check us and that's why what makes the rise of china me i feel maybe a little bit optimistic about it is finally we have a peer nation when which is actually more is is has i'm glad you put it that way because that means we all should think of this in the global reality of what forces are checking what not because we're americans and so we're thinking america first but because of how it affects workers here and everywhere the global power play right matters and uh, also i think it's an important point to say that none of our analysis of this global situation uh, argues against each global north or developed country pushing for uh, equality egalitarian um, you know worker centric reforms uh, and so forth right so like supporting our comrades internationally uh, whether in the, the north south or anywhere else doesn't necessarily in any way have to conflict um, with with these other aims right no no I don't think so you know it's like that I've seen people argue that like the the real socialists are the ones who are against like the welfare state because we we need imperialism to pay for it it's like no no we no, don't that, yeah we don't the, need or the accelerationist nonsense right uh, we have to maximize the suffering of people in, in in order to lead to the revolution it's just it doesn't work that way and 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 also we should care about the people that we're causing the suffering for right yeah <clears throat> yeah and i mean you also just have a sort of an op, you know if you don't if you believe in democracy, you know, you have to like try to look after the interests of the people who are, um, yes. you know, con- Be- who- being governed. Right? Yes, exactly. And if you're just like, well, sorry, you're Lenin said you're bad in 1917 or whatever. Like that's, it's like, okay, I'm just going to absent myself from the political sphere. And, you know, so it's like sort of pretend that the revolution might come at some point and, you know, and even in the case when it, you know, I mean, I, the Russian Revolution was a complicated business. You know, Bolshevism had some uh, important positive effects, almost all of them outside of the Soviet Union. But, you know, you think at the end of the day, Lenin had a theory of history. He had a theory of politics. Uh, and if he, you know, he was he was holding the candle of egalitarian, you know, uh, politics and you uh that he had that key moment and he fucked it up he fucked it up and i think he set back the cause by a hundred years and this is i think that's right and i think it's important to say that it's just not true that there aren't these moments where people in powerful positions of leadership um don't have whether it's fdr or lenin right don't have the opportunity to advance or really harm uh the movement the egalitarian movement for for um for all of us so so, so it, it, the mass the mass movements matter the, the the workers uniting matters but also um you know hopefully these young people coming into congress for us or these young leaders that aren't in electoral politics but are uh, in dsa meetings or other forms of um collective action um 
are kind of giving rise to the right type of uh, leaders who can kind of, um, in those necessary moments, make make decisions and, and make theories and, and think and act in ways that support uh, forward progress, right? Yeah, yeah. This may be a good uh, opportunity to bring up our uh, <clears throat> second topic here, now that we've run somewhat over time with the, the first one. Um, which is the 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 latest Lafair uh, AOC? Lafair <laughs> de AOC. Yeah, <laughs> she said that she in an interview with Anderson Cooper, who's a Vanderbilt heir. Did you know that? I just learned that the other day. <laughs> I did not know that. I, I did see him um, New Year's uh, Eve not being able to handle a shot because he doesn't drink, and, and the, I don't know if you saw his face. So he could he could just really really. <laughs> really was suffering um and and was was i think tremendously offended that he had to take tequila shots on tv so well he's a vanderbilt there good for him i'm sure it wasn't the best tequila and i will you know i cut anderson cooper a bit of slack because i remember the time he chewed out mary landrew for for like the government like falling down and on hurricane katrina and also because his name is cooper like i exactly he's a coop he can't be all bad He's not the Coops, but he's a Coops. Do you think he'll give you some of that Vanderbilt money because of the Cooper name? <laughs> Maybe if I, I change mean, my name to Vanderbilt. <laughs> no, but you're, you're Cooper uh, and you're a journalist, so you're basically the same family. Yeah. That's good. I think I've been blackballed by CNN, though, so I probably will never get oh, a yeah. chance to, uh, to talk to Thanks a lot, Fareed Zakaria. Yeah. But uh, that's a story for another day. Yeah, so AOC, right, in this, in this interview, makes a, a very um, smart, true, and kind of not really controversial claim from an economist perspective that right like a 70% marginal tax rate on the people making 10 million dollars or more yeah. um would be one way to fund a, a green new deal right yeah and in fact it's like uh it's as um Eric Levitz pointed out uh in an in an article um 10 million dollars is actually pretty almost conservative way of looking at this you know so so you know in 1980 1981 when when ronald reagan became president uh the the tax rate was 70 percent on all income over two hundred and sixteen thousand dollars. so today that's like six hundred and eighty thousand if you adjust for inflation um that's she's saying 10 million <laughs> That's that's way way above, and the, right. No, what, what did they say that only would affect six thousand people, something like that, or was it sixteen thousand? One of those. Yes, yeah, it's it's. I mean, yeah, it, you're well well into the top point one percent, I believe. Um, and we and we should be clear here. You know the the uh, the way that um, conservatives are spinning this is like she's saying seventy percent tax, so that your overall tax rate would be 70%. But <laughs> reality this That's is not true. this is a marginal tax. So so the the uh the I'm, marginal is such a goofy word for this. But the the yeah, it's, it's like it's just, you are taxed at 70% only on income past the threshold. That's how that's right. the stair so, step so system works. Everyone pays the same amount from zero to whatever. Yeah. Uh for for you know, maybe you pay no tax up to ten thousand, whatever it is. I'm just making it up. Yeah. From ten thousand to thirty thousand you pay a fifteen percent. From thirty thousand to seventy five you pay twenty five percent. I'm just making up the numbers, but right, right, right. The the 
So under this, the top marginal rate of 70% would kick in at the dollar that came after $10 million. So 10 million and one, that dollar, 70 cents would be taken from, right? And so like that first $10 million wouldn't be treated any differently, right? Uh, It would have the normal progressive tax rate. Um, And so this is super, super conservative, not radical in the least. Uh, In fact, uh, I think you're going to bring up the the Matt Brunig uh, comparison to Sweden, which basically has... um, a marginal tax rate of 70% effectively uh, at $98,000. So not yeah. at $10 million, but at $98,000. Yeah. Um, and, and this is a connected discussion, by the way, to our previous discussion, because the idea that um, doing these kinds of things harms people is kind of the pushback that you get, right? Yeah. But it, but it doesn't, except right. Like what? So, so what are the what are the arguments? What are the arguments on offer here? Well, so I think you know, number one, uh, this is a good way to raise some money. Too much money going into the top, and just take some of it. Um, I think yep. that you know, the MMT, which is good in and of itself. It's it's yeah. good in and of itself to reduce the amount of super 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 wealthy people, right? That's like, yeah yeah yeah. Well, that that but that was that was going to be my second point there, which was that like the the. The the maybe even more important use of this kind of of uh, tax is to just prevent people from making that much money from making quote unquote making I think is a pretty ideologically loaded term. Um, exactly. But you know exactly. if 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 you said let's let's say one million dollars if 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 you had a you know seventy percent and let's say you went around and you uh, you know you plugged some more holes and and such. Um, in the you know to account for capital Loopholes, gains right? and the carried interest and all that kind of crap, um, you uh, you would change the terms of how people made their their uh, salary decisions, you know. And so one of the big explanations for inequality has been uh, just about how basically top executives have bargained at uh, you know these big firms. You know, if if your marginal tax rate on a big increase in pay package is going to be 70 percent, 80 percent, it used to be 94 percent at during World War Two, you just won't you won't get that pay package. It's like people were pointing out, oh, back in 1950, you know, there's only like eight people who actually paid the, the top 90 percent top uh, marginal tax rate. Like, yeah, that was the point. It wasn't about right, taxation. Exactly. It was about prov- to change the decisions. Yeah. yeah. And so in that way, you kind of dam up the economy, uh, the, the flows of money in the economy. You know, you put a you put a um, a barrier to, to the cash just like flowing up to the top. And instead of going to the top to, uh, you know, shareholders and executives, the company will decide, OK, well, I guess we'll throw some more in R&D. We'll give the workers a raise. We'll uh, put some more investment. You know, we'll maintain our factories better and so on and so forth. And so, like, you know, just a key a a, a a kind of a, a a way of regulating the economy in a sense you know it's like it's not even about taxes at all it's about like structuring the the whole system yes the decisions by those who have the means that own the means of productions and have the capital accumulated what do they do with the wealth what do they do with the capital well you can change what they do with it right in a way that reduces rather than exacerbates inequality and doesn't necessarily reduce the over like as if the overall wealth matters that much when like 10 people have it but like forget about that for a moment but but like it doesn't even necessarily have to harm your average median 
uh, worker or non-worker in the country, right? Um, that's another myth, I think, that's worth talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the the <clears throat> saw a lot of, a lot of Swedes posting on about this, and were like, oh yeah, you know, yeah, Sweden does have a seventy percent top marginal tax rate, and like it 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 does, you know, it bites in, and it kind of sucks. But on the other hand, you live in Sweden, you don't have to pay for anything. You know, yes, like, that's you, right. This is the big myth of Americans. You know, it's like you think, oh, we're raising taxes. Like, oh, that sucks. I hate paying taxes. Taxes are just a theft. Taxation is theft. Libertarian sort of uh, ideology. And even if people don't believe that, really, then, you know, it's like, oh, you know, they'll say maybe it's not strictly true. But like that's still kind of the brute instinct. The way it were, you know, in those other countries, taxation is just a way to pay for things that you that are nice to have. And in fact, you must yes. have you must have yes. medical care. You must have schools. You must have fire departments and police and so forth. And, you know, we do pay for some of those things. But, in, you know, in other cases, it's like health care. You know, you you uh, you pay tax and. um you know, then you come home and then you pay a shitload of other stuff. You pay for your deductible, you pay for your premiums, you pay for your co-pays, you pay for your co-insurance. And it's just as, you know, and, and, in, and in fact, you also pay a shit ton of taxes to, 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 to yes. for our medical system. So, so, so the value, the value is a big, important difference, right? So, so the return on investment, if you will, of the government uh, spending and, the, and what you get for your taxes is significantly different in countries that actually provide you all those fundamental things to your life, uh, whether it's your housing, your, your health care, um, your transport, you know, public transportation. And, and, you know, there is some sense in which like the American cowboy dream of living on the on, on your own land in the middle of nowhere i guess you don't need public transportation or whatever and and you know <laughs> there, there is a but like that that's the ideal now we can all just live off the, the land and be a cowboy or cowgirl and, and and that's you know of course it would be tyranny to not let me do that but like in the world where we have you know uh 325 million people it's globalized uh so many populations are urban it's just better to not have to worry about whether you will fall into poverty because you lost your job, not to worry about whether you'd be able to pay for, um, you know, treatment for cancer, um, whether, you know, all these basic things are taken care of. And yeah, you have less money that otherwise would have had to go, you know, go towards paying those things on your own. But this goes to kind of the, the paradox of choice problem and, and the, the Corey Robin piece, um, uh, which I love the title of uh, socialism is converting hysterical misery into ordinary unhappiness. Yeah. <laughs> right? Which is like, you know, um, it's not a benefit to have 30 different 401ks to choose from and then hope that the, the stock market does well. Like, yes, you have tons of choices and lots of quote unquote freedom, but it just means anxiety and stress and uncertainty over whether the choices you make will end up giving you basic security and, and you know yeah. maybe a one in a billionth chance that you'll like invest in in Amazon twenty years ago. You know what I mean? Like it's just the trade off is insane, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the the American neurosis about taxes means that so much of our social welfare state stuff is buried in the tax code in the form of tax expenditures you know to where you're giving someone a tax break which is identical to a, a subsidy a direct spending 
And what that does is just make it all hideously inefficient because the, you know, it's it's incomplete. It's all very non-transparent. You know, you just have to have yes. these massive bureaucracies everywhere that are dealing with all this paperwork. And, you know, clearly, if, if you account for tax, uh, t- uh, tax spending, tax expenditures, um, America is actually, you know, towards the top. We're on like fifth place in terms of social spending. It's just like, it's just horribly inefficient. And if you just, you know, it's a, like I think I think this logic is actually coming back into play. You know, for 30 years, you know, in the triumph of Reagan and neoliberalism, um, you know, Democrats and, and Amer- you know, Americans in general were so neurotic about spending and so afraid afraid of taxes that it was like, well, if you want to accomplish anyone anything, you got to give give them a tax credit, a tax credit for businesses that are hiring workers here at home. And I'm like, how about you just raise the money and do what you want to do? You know, set up a set up a thing and don't don't uh, you know make me fill out a bunch of forms at the end of the year. I mean, people get so confused over money, which is a, a symbol for the actual wealth, and the wealth is created by the the resources and the labor put together, right? So, like, if you just forget about all the um, symbols for a moment and say, what would happen if you had, say, Bernie's uh, plan his platform right now, which is Green New Deal, but also like what trillion dollar infrastructure uh, bill, something like that. Okay, yeah. we will just p- create the wealth of revamping our whole infrastructure around the country. Like that's the wealth. Actually, having roads and bridges that work right and function, having public transportation, like that's the shit that's actually helping your life. And then people would be compensated for doing that and creating that wealth, and those would be the workers. It's not rocket science here folks like come on no no and it's and i think you know there's a i personally know a lot of people who are in that position you know small small business owners um you know who are uh you know they're on the obamacare exchanges and they just frank it's just like they don't work you know people who are pulling in well into six figures and the insurance is unaffordable like literally unaffordable um because you're, t- you know, you're talking about spending twenty five thousand dollars before, uh, before you you get any benefit at all except for preventive care, and it's like it's just give it's me ridiculous. Let me buy yeah. some fucking Medicare for Christ's sake. It's <laughs> well, the idea that having more disposable income makes any sense if you're in debt, can't afford a health insurance, can't afford food, can't afford your rent. Right. Like who cares if technically you have more money in your bank account when you have all those expenses and problems? Yeah. Well, and it's so, I mean, it just it, it goes to show you perfectly that uh, markets are appallingly terrible for uh, allocating healthcare services because uh, very often people will have, you know, most people have no medical needs at all over the course of a year. But sometimes people will have chronic medical needs that wildly exceed their income. And sometimes people will just have a turn of bad luck. They get hit by a car or something. They have to have a very expensive surgery that totally exceeds their income for that year, too. And the market solution is, fuck you, die. Uh, <laughs> we allocate health care by price. You don't have the money to, to pay the price, then you should die. And uh, that's it. 
And so, and it justifies it ideologically by convincing people it's ethical and based on merit, and hiding the fact that luck and misfortune are the real arbiters of who gets screwed and who gets successful. So much more than your effort or planning or ability to like be a genius and game the market forces or something like that. And so, it, it's terribly uh, evil. Not just because of the outcomes it produces, but because it convinces people that they deserve to be poor, they deserve right to be rich. Uh, when really luck plays a huge role in determining that, right? Or or your connections to power. Yep, yep, and you know, and that you know, and that applies to people way up. At, you know, probably ninety ninety five percent of the population couldn't swing a major major surgery at the drop of a hat. You know. I mean, if you you make two hundred thousand dollars, like like, you know, if you, if you need like a quadruple bypass heart surgery or something like that, like that's a half a million bucks easy, um, and uh, you know, just can't no people don't have that kind of money lying around, you know, even even pretty rich people, like that's a that's a lot of money, and so it just got it just like the logic of something leading to Medicare for all is just or you know the National Health Service in the UK is completely undeniable. You make the risk pool as big as possible. Everybody's in. Everybody's covered. Boom, one and done. Don't have to worry about it. End, end, the end. And that, you know, hopefully I would say, maybe to wrap this up, that this, uh, this, this neurosis and this, this, this false belief about, about what taxes are, how threatening they are, and um, what they are good for is, is, is going to be just washed away by by AOC and the people coming up behind her um suggesting yeah 70% tax on rich people check give it to them both barrels baby that's right don't be afraid be assertive and uh that's that's the way to 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 take the leadership uh you know as a newbie it's yeah. great and it's everyone great. this is headline news across the country whatever she does but like make a big make those big old bold claims and people, you know, they're following the bouncing ball. I mean, it, it you know, that people that people say this in a derogatory way that it's like Trump. This this is kind of like Trump in a good way to the to the extent that, yeah, if 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 you're bold and compelling and like funny and intelligent and in the case of AOC, like very attractive, especially for a Congress person, like people pay attention and you can leverage that. And it it really yeah. is not that difficult because it matters what the content is is then um, what the content is that's then provided once you have people's attention. When you're compelling, that's great. Now, Trump is compelling in a way in service of misogyny, racism, xenophobia, and mostly narcissism, self-aggrandizement, really. Uh, And that can be entertaining, right? And and he, you know, vitriol and, and getting people fired up and angry and hateful. But when you can have the same charisma and ability to compel people to listen, and then what you say actually gets them to think about our political situation and have hope for changing it, hell, that looks like a, a powerful future for for the left. Yeah. So go get them, AOC. Yeah. Go get them. Extremely yeah. so that's, uh, the first relatable congressperson, member of Congress in history. <laughs> Oh, look at that. That's true authenticity right there. Yeah. So that's that's a hopeful note for our, for our first uh, 2019 New Year's episode to, to, to finish on, I think. Yeah. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. So awesome. we'll see you next time, folks. Thanks, everybody. Yes. And if you want to uh, you want to hear an extra episode every week, uh, subscribe to our Patreon. 
patreon.com slash left anchor.